Welcome to the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Today we've got Bianca Nogrady back on the show with us to bring us some updates on the pandemic. Bianca has been keeping all things on our COVID-19 blog up to date over the past few weeks. And if you've missed out on anything that she's been writing, you can check it out on themedicalrepublic.com.au. Bianca, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So firstly, I wanted to bring up something that's been a prominent theme on the blog lately, and that's the relationship between COVID-19 and cancer. So two studies were suggesting a higher risk of death from COVID-19 in current cancer patients, and that was especially those with hematological um, malignancies, so people with lymphoma and leukemia myeloma. What's going on there? Um, Yeah, so this is one of the really big questions with COVID-19. Part of the problem is because we're still trying to understand what um, this infection does to the body, there's particular concern about people with chronic illnesses and with conditions like cancer about how their cancer, not just their disease, but also the treatments that they might be on, will be interacting with COVID-19 infection. And there are now two studies, which are reasonably big uh, in the grand scheme of things, um, suggesting that cancer patients or some cancer patients may be at greater risk of dying from COVID-19. So the first study, which was published on uh, the preprint server MedArchive, so obviously non-peer-reviewed, which is really important to remember with these studies, these haven't kind of gone through that normal rigorous process of having um, a variety of eyeballs on them to look for flaws in the study and the data. But this was a retrospective study and it looked at the outcomes in 283 COVID-19 patients with cancer who were um, admitted to uh, a number of hospitals in Hubei in China. And around a quarter of these were former cancer patients who'd um, who'd been treated for their cancers within, uh, sorry, more than five years ago and had not had a relapse. So I guess what we would not call cured, but certainly, you know, the the gold standard of um, cancer treatment, I guess, or what we're aiming for. And three quarters of them were current cancer patients and around half of these still had advanced metastatic disease. And they found that, first of all, current cancer patients were more likely to have severe COVID-19 symptoms on admission. Um, and they so, um, also had a 2.45 times higher risk of death compared to former cancer patients. So the mortality rates among current cancer patients were 21% compared to 9% um, with former cancer patients. Um, and the overall mortality rate were um during their hospitalization was around 18%. But what really stood out in this study was that um, patients who have these kinds of lympho um, I never can say this properly, lymphohematopoietic malignancies, uh, so this is lymphoma, leukemia, and myeloma, these have the worst outcomes. And um, in this particular study, there were seven patients that had these malignancies who had all recently undergone chemotherapy and all of them died from COVID-19. Now, the second study, um, so this was actually published in Cancer Discovery, so it was peer-reviewed, and this was 218 patients uh, with COVID-19 and a diagnosis of cancer in New York. Um, And about three-quarters of them had solid tumours and about one-quarter had haematological um, malignancies. So here they found an overall mortality rate of 25% among patients with solid tumours, Um, And this was higher in those that had lung, gastrointestinal, gynecological cancers. But interestingly, it was lower. So the overall mortality was lower in patients with breast and genitourinary cancers. Don't know why. Obviously, there's, you know, with these studies, there's not a lot of depth to them at this stage. Um, But amongst the patients with the hematological malignancies, the mortality rate was 37%. 
um, compared to 25%, <clears throat> excuse me, in patients with solid tumors. Um, and again, there was a trend towards even higher mortality in patients with myelomas. So it's, you know, it's really difficult because, you know, with hematological malignancies, often these patients are severely immunocompromised, um, you know, if they've got kind of B-cell lymphomas. Um, they're often being treated with immunosuppressive therapies. They may have been, um, you know, in the lineup for kind of um, uh, stem cell transplants or uh, bone marrow transplants. So it's, you know, they are, they are a vulnerable group. But the other interesting observation with the New York study was that many of these patients had actually been exposed to COVID-19 through the healthcare system. So they'd been in hospital getting treatment for their cancers and that was where they had actually been exposed to COVID-19. They didn't go so far as to say that was where they had contracted it, but it, that was seemed to be the most common um, uh, likelihood, I guess, or the place that they'd been exposed to the infection. And this was before there was, you know, such understanding of, of how bad the pandemic was in the US. So it's, I wouldn't say the best news um, in terms of for patients with hematological malignancies. And it certainly does suggest that these patients need to be much, much more careful about um, exposure if, if that's possible. Um, and it seems like one of the issues that's been coming up is this uh, trouble with defining uh, when people have died from COVID-19 as opposed to other causes. Can you tell us a bit about that, Bianca? Yeah, so this is challenging because, um, again, we're still trying to understand what COVID-19 does to the body and when people die, what they die of. Um, and I find this fascinating because even just the definition of death is highly problematic. And I wrote a whole book about and not just the definition of death, but death generally. And we still don't actually have a universally agreed definition of death. So you can imagine that things start to get a little bit more complicated when you introduce something like COVID-19, where suddenly you've got normally healthy patients or apparently healthy patients dying from stroke. You've got kids dying from, you know, Kawasaki or presenting with Kawasaki's disease. Um, and also where you've got a much higher death rate amongst people who have pre-existing comorbidities. So, for example, hypertension, um, I think diabetes is associated with high mortality. You've got um, obesity, you've got all, all of these things. So the WHO, um, the official definition of what a COVID-19 death is, and this is for surveillance purposes because it's got to be pretty clear. So it's a clinically compatible illness and a probable or confirmed COVID-19 case unless there is a clear alternative cause of death that cannot be related to COVID disease, such as trauma. So obviously if someone's COVID positive and they die in a car wreck, they were not killed by COVID-19. Um, but the other thing they stress is that for a death to be um, attributed to, sorry, attributed to COVID-19, there should be no period of complete recovery between illness or death, which is also interesting because um, from memory, it seems that the second and third week of COVID infection seems to be when symptoms become most severe and, and a lot of people seem to crash kind of later on in the, in the course of the infection. So, you know, if they got tested and on day one, um, you know, as soon as they presented with mild symptoms and then had mild symptoms and mild symptoms, you know, one might be tempted to think that it had been resolved, but then maybe two weeks later they have a stroke. So it's far from straightforward. But, it, you know, it is – this stuff is really important because um, – understanding and correctly defining and also certifying deaths from COVID-19 is going to be essential for us to understand how this pandemic is, is kind of playing out. So the Australian Bureau of Statistics has put out its formal advice um, that if a patient dies from COVID-19, you have to write 
either COVID-19 or coronavirus disease 2019 in part one of the death certificate. So you can't just use coronavirus because obviously then that could be SARS-CoV-1. Um, there's an emergency code that's uh, supposed to be assigned, which is U07.1.1 COVID-19. This is on the blog, so obviously <laughs> check it out. Um, and I'm sure this is written in multiple places. But um, and, and, you know, the other thing with the ABS is, is said is obviously record COVID-19 in part one of the medical certificate of cause of death, but they also want to know um, of the conditions and symptoms that might be part of the causal pathway leading to death. So, for example, if there was pneumonia, there was um, fatal respiratory distress, that needs to be recorded alongside it. So, you know, at this stage, the more information that can be gathered about um, who's dying from this disease and why they're dying, uh, the better we can understand how to manage it and hopefully also how to treat it. So, Lots of very useful advice. Um, a lot of this stuff is on the RACGP website as well, so which is where I keep finding it. So thank you, RACGP. And moving on to people that may be worried about how their medications might interact with their COVID-19 risk, last week we started to see some messaging about biologics for immune-mediated inflammatory disease. I'm thinking Crohn's, ankylizing spondylitis, and that it's not linked to higher COVID-19 risk. Uh, what's the latest on this, Bianca? Okay, so the good news is patients with these immune-mediated inflammatory disease like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, psoriasis, those sorts of conditions. Um, if you're taking biologics, you don't appear to be at a greater risk of severe COVID-19 infection. So this is a case series from New York. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was 86 patients. Um, about three-quarters of them were being treated with biologic or um, JAK inhibitors, which I think is... Uh, Yanis something kinase, activating kinase, I'm not sure. But um, what they found was uh, there was a similar rate of hospitalisation um, amongst the patients in the study. In fact, it was slightly lower, interestingly, amongst the patients being treated biologics with biologics, but not. I don't think that was significant. So really it's just reassuring patients that biologics at this stage in from this you know small case series of 86 patients do not appear to be associated with a greater risk of severe COVID-19 infection. And so, Bianca, it's Thursday now, um, Thursday the 7th of May, um, and we all know that tomorrow there's going to be a cabinet meeting um, and hopefully, you know, we're going to have some restrictions lifted by the weekend. Do you want to talk us through, you know, sort of where we're at in terms of our COVID-19 daily cases, um, what's been happening over the last few weeks and, and where we go from now? Yeah, well, look, I think it is safe to say that Australia so far has dodged a bullet and that is fantastic news and that's one of the reasons why um, last week the Prime Minister flagged uh, giving Australia an early mark which prompted some discussion because on, on you know the usual interwebs of people saying what does that mean and I apparently there's either you're either and it's someone who knows what early mark means <laughs> which is a select group um, and someone who doesn't but basically it means you get off school early or in this case get off restrictions early um, so at the moment we are we have gone up a little bit. So the national figures this morning we've um, got six thousand eight hundred and seventy five confirmed COVID infections in Australia. That's up twenty six from yesterday. So we've kind of gone up by I think twenty six and then twenty four the day before and twenty four the day before. Um, so it's it's kind of 
ticking up a little bit and I think everybody's watching this very nervously because obviously last Friday a number of states um, eased restrictions. Uh, so in New South Wales you were allowed to have two adults visit your home for social purposes and um, schools have gone back in some places, um, some states. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, if we assume an incubation period of I think it's around three to five days for this for this infection that, you know, if we were going to start seeing uh, an uptick, it would probably start about now. Um, obviously, I'm not an expert. I'm not a public health physician or an epidemiologist. So, uh, this is just based on what we've kind of uh, been parsing, I guess, to, to understand what's happening. So the PM in the um, post-cabinet press conference last week said that, um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, all the way along there's been a whole set of conditions that the uh, cabinet had agreed needed to be met before they would consider easing the lockdown restrictions. So those were things like um, compliance with social distancing, availability of personal protective equipment, um, staff training, uh, testing capacity. Um, it was a whole, there was a whole lot of them, and I think 15 in total. And what he said last Friday is that 11 of those we've got a great big gold star on, and in particular the fact that Australians have been so good at sticking to these social distancing measures, with a few notable exceptions, but generally we've been really, really good. And, and that's, um, you know, they're suggesting that that's really one of the, the key reasons why we've managed to kind of keep this curve as flat as we have. Um, and obviously they wanted to make it to, to ramp up testing capacity so that we can keep an eye on community um, outbreaks and transmission, um, availability of PPE. We've had uh, a huge, uh, apparently a huge amount of PPE and masks and personal protective equipment that's been sourced uh, made available for Australian healthcare workers. Um, one thing that was really interesting about the press conference was that Morrison just thumped the tub on this COVID safe app like you would not believe. It's all the zealotry that he probably normally reserves for, for his um, church meetings. He really was selling this hard. And I find it quite interesting, the language that, um, or the, the kind of the approach that's being taken. It's very carrot and stick. You know, so the stick is if you don't do this, you are letting down Australia's healthcare for, workforce, you know, that do it for the doctors and nurses. Um, no one's yet come out with it. It's un-Australian not to download the app, but I give it a matter of days before that starts being rolled out by someone, which would be just disgusting. But anyway, um, and then the carrot is, funnily enough, if you do this, we can all go back and open up the footy again, which, I mean, I've got to admit, doesn't really appeal to me. Uh, the appeal for me is we can have friends over for dinner, but you know, I think they just really want to kind of appeal to the um, the sports watching sector of Australia, uh, as and, and that's been their kind of big carrot. But it's it's been a very strong strong message coming out of um, federal and and state le um, leadership about the COVID Safe app. And there's been a lot of discussion about the COVID Safe app, and obviously, um, you know, privacy concerns, which Felicity, you've written a lot about with this government, and I know a lot of people have a lot of concerns about this government's ability to deal with people's private information. So it's a hot topic, um, but you know, they they really are arguing that that is one of the significant conditions that you know that our freedom <laughs> freedom to move will be uh, will be will hinge on, I guess. So, um, but, you know, obviously the AMA has also put out a release just yesterday warning against um, easing restrictions too soon because uh, 
there are indications from other parts of the world. I think Singapore is one of those countries that had a quite significant second wave of infections after they eased restrictions, and that's absolutely what we don't want to see because, you know, a, a, a resurgence in infections will mean a resurgence in deaths, and um, that's really what we we've kind of worked so hard to avoid mass casualties and it would be a crying shame if um if we all got a little overexcited and and suddenly we found our hospitals were full and uh, and we were losing our loved ones so it's going to be i think interesting times over the next two weeks seeing what happens with those infection figures yeah the promises on being able to go back to the footy do seem a little bit interesting considering that i have uh, got the sense from uh, the Chief Medical Officer, Brendan Murphy, that we won't be having any large gatherings until we have a vaccine or some more solid uh, preventative measures for COVID-19. So it, it seems interesting that the Prime Minister seems to be promising this uh, these glory days to come where we'll be able to go back quite quickly to these large social gatherings. Well, I mean, uh, what I find interesting is that it is, you know, particularly with re- respect to sport, um, you know, it is a major occupational health and safety issue for it. I mean, it's a high, you know, most of these sports are very high contact sport um, or if they're not, they still require, it, it's pretty hard to social distance on, on the footy field or on the, you know, on the hockey field or playing netball or, um, yeah, I, I feel like in some ways are sports people being put at risk um, in the way that, you know, teachers are kind of being put, it's like, well, we we need these things to resume, so we are willing to put your health, um, I guess, at risk, so that all of these other people can benefit. I, 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 you know, I think the kind of the ethical discussions around that are kind of interesting. If, um, yeah, like if we did have an outbreak associated, you know, if if the NRL went back and we had an outbreak associated with a game amongst NRL players. You know, knowing what we know about how this virus is transmitted, what what are the legal responsibilities in that situation when you're putting somebody in harm's way? So for some more lighthearted stuff this week, we saw some great stuff coming out of the CDC, Bianca. Um, don't bleach your pets. What's going on there? I know. The CDC website is actually very funny and it, I, I don't think it's supposed to be, but it is quite funny because some of the stuff that's posted on there, you think, like, does this actually need to be said? And it does make me wonder about what, you know, people are thinking in the US sometimes. Like, really, you, you actually need to be told not to wash your pet in household disinfectant or bleach if they've got COVID-19. So it is quite funny, um, and I, but I, I suspect it's no laughing matter over there. Um, but, yes, so pets can get COVID-19, um, particularly cats. Cats seem to be more vulnerable than dogs. Um, and so the CDC has put out advice, at, and, and actually they, they do show a lot of the same sort of symptoms as well. So, you know, they do experience fever and cough, you know, the dry cough. Um, they can have nausea, vomiting and diarrhoea. Um, all of the same sort of things that we experience. So, um, well, the first advice is take your pet to a vet, obviously, get them checked out um, and tested. And then if they do test positive, don't wash them in bleach. Thank you, President Trump, for that particular gem. Um, The other advice is that they should be kept away from other pets, so don't take them out for walks and to the dog park and let them loose. 
Um, ideally, they should be kept away from everybody. So if you can have a sick room in your house where you kind of keep them in that sick room, which I can imagine would be an absolute nightmare because you could just, you know, this poor cat or dog just clawing at the door all night wanting to get out. It would just be a horrendous. So it's um yeah i can it it wouldn't be much of a fun situation i incidentally i don't know what the death rates have been if there have been kind of fatalities in pets attributed to covid-19 but i don't necessarily think we code pet deaths the way um with the same rigor that we code human deaths but uh, i'm sure there's a study going on on this somewhere the other fun thing that the cdc put out this week um is that they're clearly branching out from uh, infectious diseases to haberdashery and so they have posted their own um, instructions on how to make your how to sew your own cloth mask, um, and they have a few of them. So uh, there's a you know more detailed one that requires you know you to actually have a sewing machine and to you know be a little bit of a dab hand with a needle. But then if you can't do that, then there is also the um, use a bandana, which as uh, we've it could have been discussing earlier, which has been pointed out on Twitter by a number of African Americans, is um, if you're an African American walking around with a bandana over your face in the United States, you're likely to get shot by police because they think you're about to rob a store. So there's there are some serious racial problems with the idea that one should tie a bandana over one's face and um, go sauntering into a, a store in the US. Um, and then their third suggestion is you can also just cut up a T-shirt and um, we made the point on the blog yesterday that if you are going to do that, don't raid your parents' wardrobe and grab that old kind of T-shirt that looks like it's got holes in it and cut it up because it may be that you actually cut up someone's favourite band T-shirt from when they were 18. It sounds um, like you're speaking from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did mention a Slayer T-shirt and then the question was asked, it's like, oh, is this is this uh, something you've been through? But no, no, I was never cool enough to have a Slayer T-shirt. Um, no, my T-shirts are all pretty daggy, actually. I don't think there's any I'd lose too much sleep over if they got cut uh, cut by my kids. But, um, yes, they have been known to, kids have been known to get a little excited with scissors and <laughs> cut their own hair and cut tablecloths and cut furniture and cut T-shirts. So, yes, we thought this should come with a safety warning. Well, this one's for a good cause. You know, your T-shirt is going towards public health interventions that may or may not work depending on <laughs> what studies you're looking at. <laughs> Well, that's true. Yes, they didn't. Uh, they didn't kind of go into detail about just how effective these cloth masks might be, um, and obviously that's a whole other area of debate. But yes, <laughs> another rabbit hole. Uh, well, thank you so much, Bianca, for your time this morning. That's really interesting to to hear all of the things that are happening with this pandemic. Um, and I'm sure the GP listeners who who don't get time to read all of your fantastic updates will really appreciate you coming on the show and just chatting about it. Um, how can people reach you, Bianca, if they've got some tips or ideas for stories? Yeah, so drop me an email, bianca at biancanograde.com. So if there's anything you've seen that you'd like more information on or um, heard a rumour, got a tip, got some feedback, yep, drop us a line. And, you know, now that the CDC is doing all the stay-at-home craft, um, maybe if you have something to add to the face mask sewing, <laughs> we'd like to see that too. <laughs> Absolutely. Face mask innovations. I've seen some fantastic ones where you see people like sewing, kind of uh, making teeth patterns and sewing tongues on the outside and making them into dragon faces. People are getting very creative. I think GPs are getting creative because everyone's getting really bored. So if you're a GP and you're doing something exciting and creative, please let us know. We, we have uh, room for those kinds of things in our magazine. And if you'd like to subscribe, you can find us on Spotify or iTunes or you can listen through the Medical Republic website. Uh, just search for the Medical Republic on whatever podcatcher you use. Thanks for listening. <laughs>